Hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of DLN Extend. If you haven't listened before, we choose topics covered by the Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss Gaming, and the newest podcast, Hardware Addicts. I'm Eric. And I'm Nate, a Linux, fitness, and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. So Eric, what have you been up to? This week, I've had a few things going on. First, we've talked about VPNs several times in the last few episodes. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me, I have a Synology NAS, and I know it's proprietary and should probably look at free NAS or another option, but I have it. I've had it for six years. It runs great. I'm going to keep using it until it dies. It happens to have an open VPN server built in. And I thought, wait a minute, I can just use this instead of using one of the commercial VPN offerings. So I set it up. Went on the road this week and tested it out. And sure enough, it works great. The speed's great. All the traffic's routing back through my network. Actually even goes through the Raspberry Pi, through the Pi hole, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and I have access to all of my network shares and, and computers on my local network and other devices. So not only do I get the benefit of a well-performing VPN option, but it also ties back to my local network. And it's like I'm sitting right here. I've been aware that it can do that for quite a while, and it just, for some reason, it's one of those things I just wasn't thinking of, and I thought of it this week and was really happy with the result. Well, now I'm dying to know, how do you actually connect to your network through the VPN? Like, do you have a, a dynamic DNS service that you use, or how does that actually happen? I found that my public IP doesn't seem to change very often, but your ISP can change that, and it is dynamic. So I did set up a dynamic DNS service so that if it does change, I can just use the domain that they've assigned to me. And that way it kind of future-proofs it if it does change, because that's the last thing you need if it does change and you didn't realize it changed, and now you can't connect and you can't even figure out what it is. Uh, so yeah, I'm using a dynamic DNS and otherwise, it's just an open VPN connection. So when you create it, it gives you an OVPN file that you can import. And it also gives you a key that it generates. So you've got a secure key-based connection. And then you use your username and password that you have set up on the device itself. I mean, honestly, it's faster than several of the commercial VPNs I've used. Now, really, if you were local, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm an hour away in Tampa a couple days a week, and so I'm using it there. It's within the same region, all the same sort of backbone and all that. So sure, it's going to be faster. But that's one of the things with VPNs. If you have a provider that doesn't have a server near you, then you're not going to get a great connection. So even though a few of the VPNs I've tried do have Florida-based servers, some of them are in Miami, some of them are in Orlando. And so they're, they're about as far away from me as I am from my home when I'm in Tampa. And it still seemed to perform a little better. Now, maybe that's because it was the only connection on that system. And so those other servers are servicing, you know, who knows how many connections. But yeah, the performance was fantastic. And, and I just love the idea that it's routing back through my own network that I can control, which is uh, pretty cool. I can see a lot of positives for that. It's like, in a way, like you could be at home, check things, interact with the systems or devices on your network, even though you're not there. I mean, that's, that's actually, that's a beautiful thing right there. I've seen a lot of people talk about having the connection set up so that you can access your devices remotely in a secure way. But 
I don't think I've really seen anybody talk about using it as a way to just use the traffic, right? Your traffic goes through there and then you're using it for all the things you would use a commercial VPN for. And I'm sure there are plenty of other ways besides just a Synology NAS to do this, but it, you know, it was there and it was easy to set up and it just worked. So how do you actually connect to your VPN then? Is that something you can do through Network Manager and, and Plasma or something like that? Yes, because it outputs an OVPN file, you really can just take that file. You do have to edit it and put your specific information. So I put the domain for the dynamic DNS in there. And then once that's set to the, what you need it to be, then you just import it. So if you go to Network Manager, you go import from file and point it to that file, fill out some more information there, username, password, that sort of thing, set the right connection key. That's it. You Once it's set up, you have whatever connection you're on. You know, I was in my case, a Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi connection. And then I just click network manager, say connect. I'm on plasma. So there's the button just says connect next to the VPN, just like any other VPN connection. Well, that's pretty darn cool. And that makes me want to look into that myself. To get good performance, you're likely going to have to have a solid internet connection. So I'm on a 500 by 500 synchronous connection on fiber. If you are on a lesser connection or let's say an asynchronous connection where you're getting a fast download speed but a slow upload speed, then the upload speed is what's going to limit how fast your connection is going to be back to your system. So maybe that's why a lot of people don't use this method. And if you're okay with it being slower, that's fine. It'll still work, but it's just not going to be as fast as let's say a commercial provider might be otherwise. Right. But still, I mean, if I'm in a hotel, I can't imagine that my Wi-Fi is going to be any worse, you know, VPNing or whatever. Can you say that? That's a very good point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. When I'm in a hotel getting two megabits down and it's like, "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time, if I'm out and about, it's not because I'm looking for performance or I'm not using VPN for performance. I'm using it because I have to. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I've been doing this week is working with audio. I've had some feedback on just some videos and things where, admittedly so, my audio hasn't been very good recently. And I just have been fighting with it. A lot of it's been due to Pulse and just trying to get Pulse effects to cooperate. I figured out that OBS was actually, the filters that are built in there, they have a expander and a gate, and I've used both. And even with the settings set very high, so that it's not clipping me off, there's still a very muddy tone to it. So there's something there. I don't know what filter it is. And I'm not saying it's OBS specifically. It might just be OBS on my system. But I just figured out that that was a big part of why I was having so many issues. So I've switched away from that. And then I was having issues with pulse effects where I couldn't quite get it to work right. And then there's something weird with pulse effects where it wants to duplicate the inputs and the outputs on the audio, especially in OBS. And so I've gone back to looking at Jack again and have had some good success. I'm on Jack right now as we're recording. And I mean, hopefully it's better than it's been, but it sure seems better. And when you take the time to learn Jack, this is probably my fifth time of coming back to it and really trying it. And uh, I've, I've the KX Studio plugins really make it easy uh, or much easier, I would say. So Cadence lets you control the Jack server itself and set the configuration options. And then I'm using Carla, which is a plugin bridge, which lets you add 
plugins. And then the way Jack works is that everything's sort of in sequence. So I've got a expander plugin, I've got a compressor, I've got a deesser because I've gotten <laughs> some feedback from folks that I have some sharp S's. So I'm trying to tune it and all the tools are there. The thing with Jack is you just have to take the time to really understand how it works and put those pieces together in the right way. I feel like I'm getting closer and hopefully for the folks that are listening to this or watching my videos that this is going to continue to get better or it is already better. But it's just something that really takes a lot of time to get just right. So I've been doing my homework and trying to put it into practice. Hopefully I can get to a point where it's a little easier to listen to. Now, what I'm curious about is adding jack. Is it, are you removing pulse and using jack or is it do you have some sort of a pulse and jack? Are they able to live side by side with each other or how are you doing that? So there's actually a bridge between pulse audio and jack. On Ubuntu based distros, it's pulse audio module jack. And on Arch, I think it's just pulse audio jack. Jack's kind of sitting in the middle and you're, you're sort of chaining to it. So you can still use Pulse Audio for your inputs and outputs, and it behaves well because all of the desktop environments expect Pulse Audio. You can use just Jack, but it's a little more difficult. Having the Pulse Audio module in there makes it easier to manage your devices on your desktop, but you then still have the ability to use Jack and chain those things together. Pulse Audio just becomes another piece of that. So some people complain that Pulse Audio has latency in it or something of that nature. I don't know if that's a serious issue or not. I've not experienced it as a serious issue. Does Jack have any additional latency by having those modules plugged into Pulse Audio? It is collective. So the more you add into Jack, the more pieces you're adding in. Each little piece adds a little bit more of processing on top of it. But that's part of tuning Jack is you have to set the right configuration for your system. The thing that made it a little easier this time, I said it's been the, probably the fifth time, each time previously to this, I was under the impression that you had to have a real-time kernel in order to get good performance out of Jack. What I figured out, and this is from the Jack website itself, is that you really don't need a real-time kernel. Even the generic Linux kernel is good enough. It's going to depend on your hardware a lot, but if, if you have a reasonably powerful machine, the standard kernel is good enough. There are some things that they have you tweak, but ultimately you don't have to completely replace the kernel and, and do all of that real-time stuff. Even with Jack and Pulse living side-by-side, side, it's still real-time or near real-time? No, Jack enabled things will benefit from Jack. So if you turn on, let's say there's a way to loop back your audio, your microphone mm -hmm. audio in Pulse, it'll still have that latency in Pulse. So Jack is not, it. it's Pulse just on top of Jack. So it's not that Jack can solve the latency issue in Pulse. It's just that because Jack is behind that, if you're using something that can hook into Jack directly, you know, I'm recording the Audacity right now, and it's going straight into Jack. So there's no latency there, but it's also then outputting beyond that to Pulse. And then that Pulse system is still a completely separate audio, you know, okay. system. So it's it's basically, it's now layers, because it's still also as well. It's also Jack Pulse Audio. I got you. It's interesting. I, I definitely want to look into this now. I, I don't know if you noticed, but I took some notes in your section here of what, what you've been up to that you can, I don't know, use later. But you said, talk about Cadence and Carla, and I, I want to learn more about those in particular. But that's for another time, I suppose. KX Studio, those, those folks do some really great work. They've put together some solid tools for managing all of the things in Jack that are particularly daunting. And it doesn't overly simplify them. There's still a 
pretty steep learning curve if you don't understand how Jack works. But they give you great graphical tools for setting up the plugins, for wiring the pieces together. I'll have to show you sometime, but it's a canvas. And it's literally like you drag in a thing and then you have to hook that thing into other things. And I know that's a really silly way to say that. No, it makes sense. Hook a thing into another thing for another thing. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I get it. That That's what affects how it works. And so that's where it gets super complicated if you get into it deeply. If you want to have your mind blown by Jack and KX Studio Tools, watch Ven from Linux GamerCast. He has a couple videos out. He makes, he's like... This is a really easy setup. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but if you watch the video, it's it's this canvas with dozens and dozens of filters and inputs and sources and out. I mean, and he's got them all wired together, and every little piece is just a little strand, and it looks like a mind map that's gone crazy, basically. If you've ever seen nice. one of those, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely want to learn more about this as you progress with this. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what knowledge you transfer to the rest of us on this, because it's something that I th- I can see some use for. Uh, I was having some issues. Um, I was going to do a, um, a live stream. I was going to try to hook some audio around in Pulse and Pulse effects and everything else. And I was having some trouble with it, getting to all work with OBS. And I was thinking about, doesn't Jack do like these patch bay things? No, oh, whatever. And, uh, but th- this is good to know though. And I, and I need to do some digging and seeing what's available for me out here in the, uh, in the repositories and, and so forth. So Nate, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been doing a lot of background things or, or underbelly things of my personal cubicle Nate. I don't want to call it an empire. Maybe my cubicle Nate pile of dirt. One, uh, per your recommendation, I've been, I moved my domain registrar from GoDaddy to Namecheap. Talking to you, I asked how long the process would take. I think I started it on Friday last week, and then it was done by Thursday. It took six days, or five or six days. I can't remember now if it was Saturday, Friday or Saturday. Anyway, uh, it took a while for that to, to change. And then once it did change, it broke my email which, you know, that was unfortunate. I also want to go from having, from forwarding anything cubiclenate.com to another email provider to having its own hosting, like own, my own email hosting, that's anything cubiclenate.com. And so that, thanks to uh, your help today, is now done. Um, and so there's been a lot of like learning and understanding and, and playing around with these things that, you know, these are, you know, uncharted territories for, for me. I'm looking forward to learning more about these different aspects of, you know, running a website, not having somebody else do it for me, in my case, wordpress.com. And also looking forward to working with you on this, you know, uh, in the in the coming weeks for going from being hosted by somebody else to being self-hosted. And so this is kind of the the first steps in getting uh, laying out everything, laying out all the uh, all the bits and pieces that need to get done before I, I do the uh, the big move, which you tell me isn't very daunting. Although I don't know how much I, I believe that at this point, because every time I start to read the documentation, I'm like, <laughs> this seems very daunting. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to to working with you on this in the very very near future. I hesitate to call it difficult. I think that might be familiarity on my part. I think it's understanding the concepts, and then once you do, it's really not that difficult. There are some things that are a little esoteric and really don't make a lot of sense if unless you've taken the time to understand them. Right. But there's a lot involved. There's a lot of steps involved. You know, you're transferring a domain, you have to set up your DNS, the hosting, the email, all these different pieces that have a certain set of configuration and requirements. And that's, I mean, in your case, what happened was you changed to a different email host, but your MX records and your DNS weren't pointing to the right place. And so when I tried to send you an email, it said, hey, I don't know who this is. 
but it didn't say that it gave me a 550 error and I had to, you know, you have to know what that <laughs> means and then figure that out. And once you sent me some screenshots of your DNS setup, but we figured it out. So we've talked about self-hosting with own cloud and next cloud and, and people are very interested in self-hosting. And every time you talk about a password manager, they want to self-host and self-hosting is really a kind of a, a movement for a lot of folks. And I'm not sure if websites is really seen as part of that, although it should be because it's really not particularly difficult if you, like I said, you just sort of understand those those key pieces. So hopefully as you and I go through this, we can sort of show some of those pieces and we'll talk about it here, but we're also going to do some videos and other things, some articles, and maybe folks can learn from that. And what I consider to be not that difficult, I can impart some of that, those steps, those key pieces of make sure you do this, this, and this. More folks might be inclined to try hosting more stuff. Well, here's hoping. And you know, I'm looking forward to learning a lot because I think this is going to be quite educational for me you know, and seeing where this goes. I just hope uh, hope it doesn't crash and burn on me. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, look, things happen. This happened with your email and, and we fixed it. Now, not everybody <laughs> has me to ask and, and, and I'm not, again, I'm not claiming to be some kind of super server admin. Or Jedi master. I've made all these mistakes and that's really what it comes down right. to <laughs> is I've already made all the mistakes that most people are going to make and I know how to avoid them. And isn't that really what knowledge is? Yeah, it is. And it's nice that I can say, Eric, help me, help me, Eric. <laughs> that's how it works, right? That's why, that's why we have friends of different yeah. <laughs> backgrounds and interests. I'm, I'm really excited to do it. It's something I know you've wanted to do for a while. And I think you're going to be pleased with the result, the performance, the self-control, the ability to just do what you want to do. Because ultimately, I think that's what fueled this was you were trying to do something on WordPress.com and they have a limit on the types of plugins that you can install and the access you have to the system and things like that. Whereas yep. on your own server, it's your own server. You can do what you want for better or for worse. And the, the cost is a little bit less, too, by going self-hosting as well. So it's not, I would be spending less than what I am now once we get, go totally self-hosting on this. So that's the other thing that'd be nice as well. Uh, you know, I just have the, the list, my list of, of gaps, of my knowledge gaps, which actually the list keeps getting longer and longer. I should probably share that with you. As we kind of go through this process, hopefully get all those questions answered and, and, and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I think this will be, uh, be good for, for me Maybe not good for you <laughs> having to deal with me, but uh, yeah, at least we can we can make something out of this. We have an announcement this week. DigitalOcean is sponsoring all of Destination Linux content. That means that network-wide, you're going to hear DigitalOcean sponsorship on all of our shows. And we are included in that. And it's fortuitous for us because... We just got done talking about self-hosting, and one of the, if not the best choice for self-hosting is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and much, much more. They really offer an amazing control panel and options in that control panel capabilities. I was in there yesterday just looking at firewalls and some different things. And this is coming from the experience of having used probably half a dozen different cloud providers. Their control panels and their capabilities, they do not make it as straightforward and simple as DigitalOcean does with their control panel. And this is something I'm actually going to have Nate do as we go through this. I want him to understand what all these things are. You know, what is the server, the storage? 
that's attached, the network that's involved, the firewall, just all of these pieces that are in there and show him how easy it is to get through all of that using their control panel. So you can get all of that and their world-class customer support for as low as $5 a month. So their first droplet, their, their smallest droplet, which is big enough for a single website, maybe a couple smaller websites, and that's $5 a month. And it scales up from there. And you can add on storage and all kinds of different options as well. But for a base price of $5 per month, it's an incredible deal. And like Nate said, compared to commercial hosting, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything this good for $5 a month. In addition to that, they have 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. What really surprised me was last week, I had to use Windows for something and I needed to know how to install Python and get it all set up correctly. I went out and I searched for Python 3 on Windows. The first option that came up was a DigitalOcean tutorial. It was amazing <laughs> because it was perfect. Every step was exactly what it needed to be. It was as much detail as you needed without being completely overwhelming. And it followed a very logical trail of this is exactly what you need to do in this order. And it worked perfectly. And they offer these for free. This isn't just for customers. This is you can go there now today and go to their tutorial section. And they've got tutorials on everything, the things that they support and directly sell to you, but then also all these other things that help you use their products in the most effective way. So the offer that's being put out there by DigitalOcean is two months for free with a $100 credit or by go... <clears throat> And you can get this by going to do.co slash dln. That's do.co slash dln. And again, we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring not only Destination, not only DLN Extend, but all of our Destination Linux shows. And we're proud to have them as a sponsor because, like I said, we ourselves use them and we really enjoy and appreciate their service. Not only are we talking about using DigitalOcean on DLN Extend or with a Destination Linux network, but you know, cubiclenate.com is now also a client as this is going to be the new home for my website. And I'm really excited. Not only am I a spokesperson for DigitalOcean, I'm also a client. So for listener feedback, Levitic has suggested that we switch to video content for DLN Extend so that he can see uh, your sweet curtains. Yeah, I'm, I'm the yellow curtain guy. And then you have Chicken, he's got yes. uh, red curtains. So he's got two yellow and a red. I feel like I need green curtains to match my open Sousa obsession behind me. Or maybe a curtain with like a, like a, a chameleon pattern on the back. That would be pretty sweet. And then we could have curtain wars. I think with the, the, the <laughs> Nate cubicle that you've got going on down there, you could pull off something like the Great Oz or the Great Nate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, not so great, Nate. <laughs> also for listener feedback the assassin from app image launcher project reached out to fill out some of the missing details from our coverage on episode 11 says hi eric and eight yesterday i was looking for app image launcher related news on the internet and i found your podcast i've listened to your podcast and also watched eric's videos about app image launcher and you had a few questions that couldn't be answered therefore being a developer of said application and also maintainer of the app image project i thought i'd write you the replies you brought up the question why not every app image asks itself whether to be integrated or not? There's a few reasons this is a bad idea. First and foremost, including that ever same bit of code adds bloat to the resulting file. This also is why we try to minimize our own runtime and remove any possible bloat. Next, this code can never be updated. If there were bugs, we couldn't fix the bugs remotely. 
Also, the code is very basic and didn't cover many use cases. We've thoroughly discussed those problems back in 2017 and decided it's best not to include any sort of integration code inside the app images. So then this makes a lot of sense, right? I questioned this and asked why only certain ones do. I've had a few that will always ask. I get it. You're publishing an app image. You have no idea how long people are going to use it, what types of things are going to change in the environment. There could be problems with that. And so that makes perfect sense. And he goes on to say that App Image Launcher attempts to fix those issues. It suppresses any possible included dialogues and provides a single standard user interface. It provides a ton of features that you couldn't or shouldn't simply integrate into every app image, such as, for instance, updating app images with App Image Update from the App Menu Launcher. After all, it is some sort of workaround. We, that is the App Image Project, would prefer the systems to simply provide desktop integration tools. Ideally, there would be no need for tools like App Image Launcher. However, App Image Launcher has received so many features, even if they're not the most visible. So I guess that even if the DEs become more App Image friendly, there's still a reason to use it on its own. So there's a reason to keep using App Image Launcher. When I found it and started using it, that's exactly what the need was for me, was I have this collection of app images that are all over the place. I try to be diligent about putting them in the same folder, but sometimes, you know, it, it's not in that folder. It was just messy. And because so many app images don't have that integration, the other factor was if I needed to launch that app image and I didn't know where it was, then that could be a problem as well. So that this just solves most of those problems, if not all of them, because it also includes the ability to remove an app image if you don't want to keep it around anymore. It lets you have multiple versions of an app image. It'll actually create multiple launchers if you want to use different ones. There are reasons why you might want to use an older version of something versus a newer. So his point about will desktop environments tackle this themselves? With so much going on in the world of universal packages, I'm not sure you can count on desktop environments really tackling this themselves. They may not do it in a similar way, so you could have a completely different experience on GNOME or one of the other desktops or Plasma. So you may end up in a situation where one desktop environment does something a certain way, you know, another does something completely different. Whereas if you use App Image Launcher, you're going to get the same experience on any system you use it on. I do think that the value is there absolutely for solving those issues with app images and integration with your system, and then also providing that consistent experience across whatever desktop you're using. And I, I've used this on literally every desktop I've tried in the last three or four months, and it works perfectly fine on all of them. It will also be interesting to see how the desktop environments integrate maybe better with app images you know, through this process too. And they may have different ways that they do that. Not only does it add the launcher for you, but it also includes the version of the executable or the, the app image itself. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah. And so that's handy to differentiate it from other launchers and to also see which version of something if you do happen to have multiple versions of the same app image. In a way that I'm using that right now is with Xlights. Yes, I'm still playing with Xlights. I can install the latest version with App Image Launcher. If I download it through with Firefox, I should I want to preface that as well. And it'll automatically go through the process, you know, and, and put in there. And then I can see which version number it is. Because right now they're doing a lot of heavy development on that project. And so sometimes things will break on, on these new app images and I can just use the other one and then, you know, I can test them out and, and do bug reports if necessary and whatnot. So it's it's super convenient to have that version number right next to it because I can see, well, which version of this app image it is. And that is really, really where I saw the power of app images right then and there. I don't know how that compares to like snaps and flat packs as far as multiple versions are concerned, but at least app images does that beautifully. He goes on again, 
Thanks for covering App Image and App Image Launcher. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me or Pro Bono. Kind regards, TA. I answered back to this email and just thanked him for reaching out to us and providing such a detailed response. And his response back to me, one of the key things in there that I wanted to share was, he says, by the way, a tip from my side, and speaking as a developer, if you cover some applications, especially ones that aren't widely known yet, please don't hesitate to reach out to the authors. It's a win-win situation. And so I will just extend out that if there are any developers of projects that they think we'd be interested in taking a look at or having covered on DLN Extend or cubiclenate.com or my YouTube channel, I'm happy and I'm sure Nate is as well. You know, I love trying new software and finding solutions to problems or a better way to do things. And so if you are out there listening and have an interest in doing that, please contact us. We have all the contact information if you go to destinationlinux.network and go to shows and you'll find DLN Extend there and all the ways to get in touch with us. And I can promise you my email is no longer broken, so that's all transferred and fixed. It was only broken for like three days. <laughs> In the DLN community focus this week, there was a post on the Destination Linux discourse forum about the PinePhone. Bryson, aka Bhib, received his Braveheart edition of the PinePhone last week, and he's been testing UB ports specifically. And there were some follow-up posts in this thread from Gambus, aka TechPills, where he's created some apps that he'd like to have tested. And there was just other discussion around people who have gotten it, people who are using it, trying different things, testing out not only UB ports, but some other uh, distros as well. And just reporting back on you know what their experience has been. And also, like I said, folks suggesting different software and things like that. So if you are are interested in the Pine phone at all, I think that going and checking out this thread in the discourse forum would be a great idea and maybe get some ideas or give some feedback and let's keep that going. This is really exciting. I, I think it's about time I, uh, I put in that, uh, that order for a Pine phone myself. It's very tempting. But as you and I have talked about several times, I am not an early adopter, even though it is super, super interesting. And it's something that I am, I desperately want a Linux smartphone. I don't know that I'm the best early adopter for new things. That may sound like I'm chickening out of, of testing it and stuff. And, and I definitely do want to test it. I don't think I'm going to jump in on the Braveheart. I think I'm going to get in on the first batch of the production you know, uh, I guess the final model. Well, for me, it's not so much being an early adopter or not. For me, it's I made a promise to myself that I have to get like six other projects off my bench before I bring a new one down. I got to crank away at that. I mean, I could, I, I could buy it, but I just, you know, if it sits in a in a drawer, it's just I'm gonna have guilt, and I I don't want to have guilt. I understand. It's it's a great carrot to have dangling <laughs> in front of you, no doubt. Yeah, it is. Motivation right there. That's what that is. For the Destination Linux follow-up, the software spotlight of FreeCAD came up. I got to tell you, Eric, my ears perked up. I'm a, I'm a huge FreeCAD fan. I'm a, a Patreon supporter of one of the developers doing a lot of great things with FreeCAD. I'm subscribed to their, their GitHub, so I, I see everything that's going on right now. And there's a lot of activity on the project, and it, it's really neat to see that they, they highlighted FreeCAD as a software spotlight. And the great thing about FreeCAD, like over something like Blender, 
is since FreeCAD is a parametric modeler, it means that anything that you do as you as you create these things geometrically, it remembers. Uh, you know, it's like a non-destructive editor. I think Michael did bring that up. You can change certain uh, uh, dimensions or certain parameters within the model anywhere in the tree, and then that, then your model will change accordingly. Let's say you have a cylinder that's 10 centimeters in diameter, and you go from to 20 centimeters for whatever reason for maybe like another part or a similar part or related part. You just have to change that, and then assuming you model everything else correctly, your wall thickness will stay the same, or if it's a ratio, you can actually make it a ratio of, of the diameter and so forth. So it makes it really easy to have lots of different designs, different concepts, and be able to produce them very rapidly. A modeler that's not parametric, you would have to remodel everything, or maybe if you're really good at it and you can you know, introduce some other parameters in, in, a, in another modeler, you can simulate that. But having a parametric model is absolutely key when doing any kind of engineering, you know, part design and so forth. So it's neat to see FreeCAD highlighted. I wish I could have been there behind the scenes on that one because I would have been uh, basically jumping up and down on the keyboard to uh, to throw out all kinds of additional information for them. But uh, I just wanted to, to highlight, yes, FreeCAD is a great piece of software if you're going to do 3D modeling in Linux. And it's cute-based, so it looks great on, in Plasma. I'm not sure how it looks in the other desktops, but it, uh, it looks great in Plasma. If you have a dark theme, it respects that and still looks great. It's actually, it works super well in a dark theme. So, you know, kudos to all the developers, the FreeCAD, and I'm glad it made the software spotlight. On episode 160 of Destination Linux, Noah, once again, did not mention ButterFS as an as a good alternative for file <laughs> systems. And uh, Michael did jump in there and said there are limitations on the way you use it, that they're very well published and publicized. And so the problems that have been noted and seem to perpetuate all tend to be because people try to do things with it that it's not supposed to do. I saw that. And I, actually, I laughed. I, I, it was one of those laugh out loud moments because it kind of reminded me of one of those like senile old men that just kind of blather on about things that aren't real anymore. You know, the red coats aren't coming. You know, that, that was a long time ago. Not to say no is senile because that would be very mean for me to say, but he does kind of sound like that. You know, the Revolutionary War happened a long time ago. ButterFS did have problems some time ago, but that's long in the past. You know, it's cute that he makes fun of ButterFS, but, you know, we just know that he doesn't know how to use it. <laughs> On episode 166 of Ask Noah, Noah covered KDE 5.18 being released. And Jason Evangelo from Linux for Everyone also covered it on episode 27. I have been using 5.18 since before it was actually released, so I was testing it beforehand. I did find one small problem. If you had your widgets locked in 5.17 and you went to 5.18, you couldn't interact with the customized layout or change panels and add widgets and things like that. I made a video on that, on how to fix it. It's actually just a simple command. It's already been fixed. There's already a patch for it. So most likely people who use 5.18 won't even see this. Otherwise, 5.18 has been fantastic. As KD Plasma tends to be, it's evolutionary. There's a lot of quality of life fixes, things that make it a little easier to use. The importance of this is that it is an LTS release and it's going to be part of Kubuntu and other LTS distributions. Plasma 5.18 is something we're going to have out there for many, many years to come. And based on that, using it today, I have to say that I would be happy to continue doing so for many years to come. I just rolled on Tumbleweed to 5.18.0 today. 
and uh, I haven't had, had a single issue as of yet. I have noticed a couple of really great quality of life improvements. One, the night color controller is now in the system tray, so I can activate and deactivate that uh, very easily. I've also noticed that like with Telegram, with the native pop-ups, I can reply right there immediately. There's actually a little reply button and I can reply. It's it's already there. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's real nice. Um, now I have less of an excuse when somebody sends me a message that I don't reply. So that kind of puts me a little bit uh, holds me a little more accountable, I suppose, which I don't really like. But uh, that's a nice, <laughs> it's a nice feature. If folks haven't seen it, it's basically how if you're, you're on a smartphone using the mobile client, if you hit the notification, it just gives you a reply entry box right there. The same thing happens now on Plasma's notifications. You actually have to enable native notifications in Telegram itself. But when you do, then if Plasma pops up a notification, it just has a text entry box right there. Like the mobile client, you type in it, boom, you're done. And not to sound like Rocco about pixels being out of place, but I have noticed that there's something more visually appealing about the pop-ups too now. I, is it, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm not grasping it, uh, or maybe, maybe I missed it before, but just something just seems different that the position of like the little, like the thumbnail icon and the text just look better now. It looks like it's just kind of, little things were cleaned up. So if you follow the This Week in KDE posts from Nate Graham, that was something that they over several iterations, actually, they added some padding, they changed the sort of layout and placement of the buttons and the text a little bit. So they refined it over time. And yeah, I think it's gotten to a point now where it's, it's comfortable, there's enough space, it's, you know, you can set where it shows up on the screen, not just top left, top right, top, you know, you can actually say like how far away, because it's KDE, of course, you got to have those right. <laughs> types of settings in there. Also, those those options just allows you to really you know set things because you know if you have a workflow or a desktop layout that the default position isn't doesn't work for you for whatever reason, it's nice to be able to push that someplace else. I have one machine that I'm considering putting it pop up section at the top because of what I have in the lower right hand corner now. So I thought that was really pretty fantastic. Another feature I really like the GTK theme how it transfers over now from um, whatever you have on the on the plasma side. So I had previously made a GTK theme to match my plasma theme, and it wasn't great. It was mediocre at best. There were some things I didn't like about it, but you know, not knowing enough about how to tweak GTK, I didn't do anything with it. I just made it good enough. So now, if I turn off or get rid of what my theme that I built, and I use just the the built-in plasma dark that exists, I can use it as a dropdown. It respects my colors from plasma for the cute styling, and those all transfer over. And let me tell you, it looks real good. You know, the colors, everything is right. Something about the subpixel hinting or whatever it is, the anti-aliasing, that looks so much better. So I'm using like Virtual Machine Manager. I almost wouldn't know that that's a GTK app now. And a lot of things just look a lot better. So I'm I'm really impressed with just these little tweaks that they've done that really make it look good. The other thing too is like some uh, like GTK3 applications, like a uh, Recipe, gnome recipes, for instance, you can tell it's just a gnome app. It doesn't quite feel like the, the shadowing isn't. Yeah, right. the client side decoration stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it still looks like a gnome app, but it it's more ref, like a more refined gnome app. And I don't mean that disparagingly against GTK, but uh, it just has a better look with the, the shadows behind it. Now kind of, they match plasma. All these different little things are they just look right. I, like literally now, I I really don't care at all if it's cute or GTK. Because at this point, it just looks right. I'm really impressed, just visually speaking, how they've really fixed that. And it almost looks more vibrant. And that's probably just me. I, I don't think that anything's changed for the rest of the application. But the it just it has it looks really good right now. And I, I, I appreciate how it looks. 
I can see how you, you know, mentioning the theme itself and, and how it's just respecting all of that. It, it really, it simplifies, right? We talk about KDE sometimes being overly complicated. And I definitely think this was a case where if you went into the GTK appearance, it was a little sort of disconnected. It was powerful because you could change a lot of things, but it was also a little bit complicated. And the fact that now they've simplified that where you just simply set your system the way you want it and GTK apps are going to inherit that. That's a really smart move on their part. And I hope that they can continue to do things like that. Maybe even make it where they have more advanced options if folks really want those as a separate option. But for the majority of people, whenever they go into this setting panel, the five things that they're always going to change are always shown there. And the rest of the things maybe are just somewhere else. On the last Hardware Addicts, Ryan, Michael, and Wendy were talking CPU coolers. And it's uh, kind of Ryan's area of expertise here. He was talking about the different types of cooling that, you know, the, the liquid cooling. And there's two different types he, he spoke of, the uh, closed loop and then one like you customize. I forget that was called. Open loop. But um, open loop. There we go. That's why I have to have you. You know these things. And then the uh, the air cooling, like I have an air cooling tower in my my new build. But he uh, he didn't mention anything about passive cooling. Not on anything new that I have, but I do use passive cooling on my Commodore 64. I know you might think, well, why are you bringing that up? Well, it's hardware, right? There's a series of heat sinks that I, I put on there, and it seems to make a huge difference. At least I notice in how hot the chips get. I'm not the only one that, that would say this. There are a lot of YouTubers out there that are into the old technology, but they can, they've demonstrated just the capability of just passive of heat sinks on devices. And I think that it's worth noting, you know, you know, if you might have some other hot chips on your on your board, like I mean, I don't know as much about modern hardware and so forth, but there are some chips on the main board that might get a little hot that are that don't have any kind of cooling on there, you know, and throwing on a, a cheap heat sink that can make a difference. I think it's really just about being complete in the full spectrum of cooling options that are available. It's not likely that you're going to use a passive cooling setup on, let's say, a GPU, a modern GPU. That hasn't been the case for many, many years on an x86 system, right? So on a Raspberry Pi, you might. Right. And on a home theater PC, maybe. So there is a potential where it could be used. And I know it's nitpicky. I'm not trying to call him out on some silly thing. I'm just saying in the grand scheme of things, there is passive cooling, there is air cooling, and there's liquid cooling. That was my only point. You're not going to use it on your CPU. There are some out there, believe it or not. There is a passive cooler. It is massive and ridiculous, but it actually does work. But you're going to have to have really, really good air ventilation, movement, lots of fans in your case for something like that to work. Right. When someone's listening to Hardware Addicts, they may not know much about hardware and they may not realize that that is an option for just general cooling, like you said, for chips and, and other things like that. There's also on servers, like those 1U rack servers, a lot of those CPUs actually just have passive coolers on them and they rely on the case fans to duct the air through the length of the, of the server. I don't know if you've seen that at all, but that does that is a thing. Those are considered passive coolers, I would imagine. That's because you mentioned the rack mounts. So the back of the rack mounts will usually have many fans. And because it's a server environment, like nobody cares that it's loud. Right. <laughs> and it's also very cool. So it's a controlled environment. In certain circumstances, yes, passive cooling is a thing and it makes sense. But for a home desktop or a normal tower, yeah, it's, it's not likely you're going to use it. He also mentioned air coolers. I'm a big fan of air coolers. I think they do a great job. There are a lot of air cooling 
systems or solutions out there that do a phenomenal job. Are they marginally warmer than a liquid-cooled solution? Yes, I guess. I haven't used liquid-cooled. I've seen lots of people have problems with them, and I'm not trying to say that they universally have issues, but liquid cooling, whether it's closed loop or open loop, it just seems like something that could fail. And it's one less thing that I'd have to deal with. The air coolers themselves do a sufficient job, particularly if you have decent airflow and ventilation in your case itself. And it's marginally less effective than higher end liquid cooling solutions. He mentioned specifically a Noctua cooler, and I've used similar coolers like that, and they are massive, and they require a gigantic case to support a solution like that. And he mentioned having an open case that gives him that much room. Yes, that's a very effective cooler, and those larger solutions, especially if you're trying to overclock or you really need super heavy-duty cooling, they work great. But in my recent Ryzen build, I used a much smaller air cooler, and it works fantastic. I used a uh, Cooler Master Hyper 212, and it is probably a third or maybe half as big as the Noctua cooler. It has a single fan. The whole setup of it is much, much smaller. It does a great job. It keeps the CPU very cool, even under heavy sustained loads. So the point I'm trying to make is that, yes, the Noctua cooler is amazing, and it can keep up with a liquid cool solution. But I think if you have a general use desktop that is in a case that's reasonably well ventilated, you don't need the biggest air cooler that you can possibly shove into the case. Many of them work very well and they're much smaller, much easier to deal with in a much lower profile and are just generally a better solution, I think, for most people than that gigantic Noctua cooler would be. And I think, Nate, you have that same cooler, right? Yeah, I was going to say, that's the exact same cooler I bought because I was uncertain as to what cooler to get. I was looking at a variety of different coolers You said, this is what I used. And I'm like, sold. So that's what I bought. And I just checked the temperature of that CPU. I actually have a thermistor right on on it. It's 21.8 degrees Celsius right now. So it seems to be doing its job. And that's on that 220 watt TDP CPU that I have, that AMD CPU. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And I actually had another thought. So I did pick up another case not too long ago, that has a liquid cooler in it. And I didn't know that those the liquid coolers can actually lose fluid inside of it. I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but hey, you know, it happens. This is one of those Corsair, I think, I'm pretty sure it's a closed-loop cooler. They say you can't refill it, right? I'm kind of a handy guy, and I like to tear stuff apart, and there's really nothing to lose in it. So now I want to see if I can actually put more fluid in it if it is low, and even if there's a way to tell if fluid is low on that. Maybe it'd be an interesting test, an interesting study to do to see, you know, what I can do with it. And the other thing too about liquid coolers that I think another reason I'm, I'm not so sure about them is they have to have a pump, right? They do. And that's funny. Continue your thought, but I was going to head down the same road, I think. So, I mean, a pump is another thing that can go bad in your system. And so the thing that would concern me, not so much about losing fluid, because I think they use a non-conductive liquid in there. So I don't think it's just water. It's something water with some sort of an additive or whatever. So it's non-conductive. So it doesn't let the magic blue smoke out of your computer. Like that's not my primary concern. My primary concern is if that pump fails, how would you know if that pump failed? And then how much is that to replace and, and so forth? Now, on an air cooler, if the fan fails, very easy to replace. It's usually a standard fan. And also, you don't lose all your cooling benefits if that fan stops working. You have also the case fans, so you have backups there. And then just the the sheer size of that air cooler tower that's on there, you're going to have a lot of heat dissipation through that regardless. You have that that mechanical advantage of, of heat dissipation. So personally, I see a lot more advantages of the Volkswagen Beetle air cool method than I do of the Porsche water cool method. I have enough to do in my life 
than to worry about whether or not my liquid cooling solution is going to leak or evaporate or the pump's going to go. The other thing about pumps is they do make noise. I'm sure the better ones make less noise, but they have a pump and a fan. And the fan is larger, so it shouldn't make a lot of noise. But I think I've seen some people say, well, liquid cooling is a much quieter solution. That fan that's on the Cooler Master Hyper 212, it's a large fan. It doesn't move particularly fast. And so, I don't know. A PC is something I want to have for many years. I want it to be as absolutely reliable and trouble-free as possible. There are absolutely situations where liquid cooling makes perfect sense. Right. If you're overclocking your CPU until it's ready to start smoldering, then yeah, okay, I get it. If you are in an industrial environment, if you're where the environment itself is really, really hot and you can't give that CPU the type of cooling it needs, there are absolutely situations where that makes sense. It's just not for me. I'm a general computer user in a lot of ways. I just want that workstation to do what it's intended to do, to be, like you said, leave the Volkswagen, right? I just want it to work the way it's supposed to for as long as it can. The idea of maintaining that to me sounds so unappealing. I totally agree. I don't have a hot rod. No, I'm driving a minivan around. I'm good with that. You know, that's that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> Just really quick, the other thing that they mentioned on Hardware Addicts this week was they're going to start a new segment called Camera Corner where Wendy's going to go through different types of camera. And this week she picked the just the different styles. So point and shoot, DSLR, and mirrorless. And I have never understood what mirrorless was. And so it was just really enlightening to me to understand what they are, how they work, that they are sort of becoming the preferred type of camera that folks use. One, because they're much smaller. And two, and this is something I didn't realize, they don't make that annoying sound whenever they take a picture. Hmm. Now, she related the idea of being at a wedding or an event where it's quiet and people are speaking and you're trying to hear them. And I remember at my wedding, our photographer, who was great, and I really enjoyed him. He didn't get in the way. He wasn't annoying. But when he was taking pictures and it was quiet, all you heard was that clack, 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 clack of the camera. And it's what you hear at press conferences and all of that sort of stuff. And mirrorless cameras are apparently silent. Hmm. And so I could see that being an enormous advantage, especially in situations like that, where that sound is just so irritating. What I didn't realize is if she goes someplace with a professional camera, she'll be thought of as a, some kind of a uh, a professional photographer, like even if she's not doing it professionally at that time. And so she uses a smaller point-and-shoot camera that is just as good as the DSLR cameras for, uh, for many situations. And I had no idea there was an issue with those larger cameras and automatically being associated with a professional photographer, even if you're just an amateur. I thought that was interesting and, and had me looking at some of those cameras as well, just because of her, her discussion on that. Absolutely. And things like the, the fact that certain point and shoot cameras are like $5,000, I think she said. I had no idea. That was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you think about it, smartphones have sort of killed the simple point and shoot market. You know, before oh, sure. smartphones, uh, we had a Canon Elf power shot little doodad that was a hundred bucks or something. And it took good enough pictures and, you know, whatever. But now that I have a smartphone, that's what I use 99% of the time. We still have a point and shoot, but honestly, in some cases, I think the smartphone takes better pictures simply because we don't have a good one. But I, I never understood that they got <laughs> that expensive. Yeah, I didn't either. So thanks to Wendy for covering that. And I'm really looking forward to additional installments where she's going through more of the terminology and the technology around cameras. Definitely worth checking out if you haven't uh, listened to Hardware Addicts Episode 3 and beyond for Camera Corner. 
In the last This Week in Linux, ProtonMails now has a Google Calendar alternative. Personally, I, I'm trying to get away from Google Calendar right now. Uh, I'm a little bit stuck, but I found that very interesting. And it makes me wonder if ProtonMail is trying to position themselves as an alternative to the whole G Suite. I wonder myself, I don't think I would need specifically for personal information management stuff, an entire G Suite replacement. I do use Google Docs and I do use Google Drive, but there are plenty of alternatives for that. Really what it came down to when I looked at ProtonMail, the fact that email is one piece of you know personal information management, and I really want my email to tie to a calendar. And so for better, for worse, where Google and Gmail have done such a great job is the, the integration between those different applications. So the fact that ProtonMail can offer an alternative to provide the calendar because that was definitely a piece for me that was missing. I, I don't think I could use just email. I really, especially if I'm looking as an alternative for my business, let's say, I have to have that. I have to have the email, contacts, and the calendar as those three things together. I don't need all of the other stuff necessarily. You know, it'd be nice. Maybe ProtonMail will get there. But if they have this calendar alternative, then all of a sudden, this becomes a much more useful and credible alternative to something like Gmail. It's absolutely something now I will go back and take a second look. I believe it still is in beta, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm sure that won't take them too long to get it out of beta and into production. When that happens, I'm absolutely going to go back and take a look and see how that all works and may just, in fact, be using ProtonMail in the future. One of my irritations with Google Calendar, not the Google aspect of it, but the there's certain tagging you, you cannot do in Google Calendar that I use in K-Organizer on, on the contact, the KDE Plasma Information Suite system. I often will tag things internally and then have it change color and then I can do, I can filter on those tags. Those tags don't necessarily translate to Google Calendar. And in fact, they'll either be lost or cause whatever integration is that K-Organizer uses with Google Calendar to become broken and with like certain events. So things won't update and so forth. It'll basically have some kind of an aneurysm. I can use those tags with Nextcloud, but I, I'm wondering now if it would work with ProtonMail because that that might be a a good alternative then, and maybe for mail in the future if I, if you could I could have that kind of calendaring feature as well. We'd like to continue this discussion with you on Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. For more information on where you can find us, you can go to the destinationlinux.network site and go to the creators page, or directly cubiclenate.com, links to my regular written blatherings, podcast, and my YouTube channel from there. And for me, you can find me in the same place, destinationlinux.network, under the creators section. I'm also on YouTube and elsewhere, and all that information is there. So check out destinationlinux.network. And as always, as we come to the end of another show, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. And until then, have a great week, everyone. See you.